Uh, I don't say this too long, but I, I love I love meeting in this garage and wor- worshiping the, the Lord with you. Um, I just I can just see him smiling incandescently um, as this small group of internationals gather in this place and and worship God. I mean. Um, I hope you think about your worship that way. Um, God created you to worship. (laughs) I know some of you are confused. Some of you are distracted. You're giving yourself over to something else. Something less than just worshiping Christ in every aspect of your life. But you were made to lust for God and worship Him. A holy lust, a sacred lust. It's what we were made for. It's what we will do forever. And it will bring nothing but pure delight to our hearts and souls and minds forever and ever. I want to begin tonight with a legend. It's a legend about Moses. It's not biblical. Uh, It's merely a legend. One day Moses was sitting on a hill under a shade tree overlooking a well, and he observed these things. The first man came and got a drink and went on his way, but he inadvertently dropped his money bag full of gold. The second man came to the well for a drink. He finds the gold. He, pick up, he picks up the gold, and he takes the gold with him. third man comes for a drink, He's weary from his travel, so he sits under the shade of the well and takes a nap. Meanwhile, the first man has discovered that he's lost his gold. He assumes he lost it at the well. He goes back to the well. He finds the third man sleeping. An argument ensues, the first man accusing the third man of having his gold. Of course, the third man knows nothing about the gold. The first man kills the third man. Moses complains to God about this. He says, he says, there's too much evil and injustice in the world, and we know that's a fact. And we know that God doesn't explain Himself to anyone, but in this one instance, in this legend, God explains to Moses what He's doing. As the legend goes, God told Moses that the first man was the son of a thief. And the thief, this thief had stolen money from the father of the second man. And so when the second man finds the gold, he's only receiving what was was his in the first place. Right? So, God tells him about that. Then He said the third man, the third man was a murderer who had never been brought to justice. And in losing his life, had encountered the justice that his murderous act had warranted. And then God said this to Moses. In the future, and I hope you guys believe this. I hope you hear it. I hope you believe it. God said to Moses, in the future, believe that there is sense and righteousness in what is transpiring, even when you can't see it or understand it. If we have read our Bibles, if we understand our Bibles, 
We know that God is relentlessly and often clandestinely working righteousness. It's one thing that Romans 1 tells us. That God is bringing righteous judgment upon this fallen and rebellious world. So, there are a lot of lessons to draw from this legend, not least of which that God is always working righteousness even if you can't see it. Amen? Even if you don't understand it, even if you're scratching your head, God is working righteousness either through His wrath or through His grace. But He's always working righteousness. It's the message of the Bible. What men often mean for evil, someone tell me. God means for good. And what is the, the primary biblical example of that? Men working evil and God working good. What is the, the primary uh, example of that from the Bible? Why are we here tonight? Because Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified. The greatest evil to ever befall the cosmos. God worked good in it. God saved a people for His own name. God is always doing a billion things all the time. And one thing you can count on, <laughs> He's working righteousness. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness among men. Romans chapter 1. Oh, there's so many things to say there, but I'll move on. I'll move on. Um, it's one of the FAQs I get as a pastor. I know I share this with you a lot. People want to know, why has this happened in my life? Why doesn't God fix this problem in my life? What is God doing in my circumstance? Where is God? Why doesn't God change this? What's God doing? And you know what I always tell you? I tell you the same thing. God's not going to explain Himself to you. God doesn't explain Himself to anyone. The Bible is not God's explanation. You know, I get questioned all the time. I'm, I'm a religious professional. People want to know the skinny. They want to know the answer. Jim, what's really going on here? And many, I'll tell you the, 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 the most worship-provoking answer in my seminary class with my theology professor, who was a genius, he would stand there, we'd ask him these questions, and he would stand there and he'd get this angelic smile on his face, and he says, I have no idea! God has not told us! He hasn't answered that question, and I can't answer that question! I get these kinds of questions all the time. And listen, what I try to say to people is, listen, God's not interested in explaining anything to you. Okay? God's not explaining Himself to mankind. Particularly to His fallen, rebellious creatures, God is not in the business of explaining Himself. He's God and nobody else is. And He is not going to bring you into His counsel. So, my... my Advice to people who ask me these questions is to learn the, Bible, uh, learn the God of the Bible correctly, have a little humility before God and understand that He is infinite mind and He's doing things that you can't begin to understand. Have some humility before God. Don't try to be God's counselor. Don't try to call God to account. Humbly worship God even when you don't understand anything that's going on in your life. Right? Isn't that the biblical example that we learn from Job. And Job gets mentioned tonight in our text. I love, what, I love what one Scottish preacher, I can't remember his name, I heard him say this. He says, you always know what God is going to be like. You just don't ever know what He's going to do. We don't know what God's going to do. Right? My famous uh, 
Or my favorite example is that Daniel was delivered, but Stephen was stoned. We don't know what God's going to do in our life. That's God's business. It's God's business. If He's going to deliver us or give us into martyrdom, that's God's business. The true believer doesn't really worry too much about this. All we want to do is magnify God in the deliverance or magnify God in the martyrdom. And everything in between, we magnify God. It's who we are. It's what we do. We're disciples. It's our principal job on the planet. Be disciples. Give a witness. Give a witness. And I just want to say to you, I've learned, um, <laughs> I've been a Christian for 32 years. I learned a long time ago, one, not to ask God for an explanation. But here's the thing. As I thought about this, I wouldn't trade one of God's promises for an explanation. Would you? Would you rather have an explanation or would you rather have the promises of God? Which one would you rather have? I could care less about God's explanation. I'm not interested in God's explanation. I don't want God's explanation. He doesn't have to explain anything to me. Right? But I hold fast to His promises. <laughs> I wouldn't trade one promise of God for 10,000 explanations. I hope you think about that deeply. What is the greatest promise in the, one of the greatest promises in the Bible, Romans 8.28, one theologian says all the other promises uh, of the Bible are in Romans 8.28. Let me just go through it real quickly with you. Romans 8.28, you know the great text. God says, I will cause, alright, I will cause, that means make happen, bring about, produce, instigate. God says, I will cause all things, not a few things, not some, not several, not many, not most, all things, everything, Everything without exception, all things comprehensively in their entirety and their, in their totality. All things, I will cause all things to work together, to collaborate, to team up, to cooperate. I will cause all things to work together for good, pleasantly, agreeably, beneficially, advantageously. I will cause all things to work together for good to those who love me, those called according to my purpose. Every promise of the Bible is in there. It's a beautiful thing. I wouldn't trade Romans 8.28 for 10,000 explanations. And I have listed here, and I'm not going to go into it because I feel the pressure of time tonight. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. But there's just so many promises. So many promises in the Bible. So many promises. And I have to ask you, in light of the many promises of the Bible, why are you timid in the world? And why are you unclear about what your job description is in the world? You call yourself a Christian? God has enabled and empowered you to do everything He's called you to do, which is to be a witness in the world. Everything else comes after that. Be a witness in the world. If God is for us, someone tell me. If God is for us, who can be against us? So I'm going to ask you, how many of you believe the promises of God? The more important question is maybe how many of you are living like you believe the promises of God? So in our text tonight, God is exhorting us to faithfully and patiently trust Him in our lives. Even if we don't understand, even if it's hard, even if it hurts, and even if we cry. And this patience that God is calling us to exercise, it's never based on an explanation or full understanding 
to the contrary. It's almost always based on lack of understanding. God means for you to go forward even when you can't make sense of it. What does the Bible tell us? What is it that delights God? What is it that delights God? There are many ways to answer that question, but what is the specific thing He says? It's what my book is about. Faith! Of course He's going to bring you into a hard place. Of course He's going to bring you into a, a place of uncertainty. And you're supposed to stand there and say, I believe you, God. I believe you've brought me to this place. I believe you're going to do a great thing here. I believe it. Faith, beloved. Faith. God delights in faith. Are you living by faith? Are you bringing all your problems to God in faith? Lord, whether you deliver me today or not, it doesn't really matter. I believe you're awesome and I love you and I trust you. God delights in faith and the true believer understands that he's a promise keeper. Read your Bible, Genesis to Revelation. He's never left a promise unkept, ever. Do you know how free you are as a Christian? Do you know how free you are? You have promises made to you by an omnipotent God. <laughs> Do you know how free you are? You're absolutely, utterly, totally free. No one, no demon, no, no one can frustrate our great God. So I'm going to read the text again, and I want you to listen for two major themes. Two major themes as I read the text. Hope, hopefully you'll, you'll follow along with me. Listen for two major themes. There will be a quiz after I get to the end. James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets uh, the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, uh, brethren, uh, as an example, brethren of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, some being sawn in two. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So what are the two themes? Did you, hear, did you pick up any themes? Re repetition. Anybody? Patience. Patience? Absolutely. Patience is, is the major theme here six times in five verses. Anyone pick up another? The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming soon. It's something we've talked about the last few weeks. James keeps bringing this up, that the Lord's return is imminent. And these two verses flow very naturally out of verse 6 that we touched on last week. Verse 6 says, You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. The wicked rich condemn and put the righteous man to death. And verse 7, it flows right out of that verse. Uh, condemning the ones who persecute and then comforting the ones who are the persecuted. 
we understand as Christians, it's living on this on this fallen planet is a, it's hard for every human being, believer and unbeliever. We are not exempt from the common problems of living in a fallen world. We we simply are not. But we have another kind of uh, issue that we have to deal with as true believers. What is it? We we are, we are not just subject to uh, the normal difficulties and tra- trials and, and travails of this life. We are subject to persecution. If if you're out there living it, persecution. The Bible is clear. Persecution will come. It's not if. It's when. It will come. So what Paul told Timothy. It will come. If your Christianity brings no persecution, hey, listen, we don't go looking for it. We don't necessarily want it today. But when it comes, it comes. And we stand there and we love the persecutor and we give a witness. That's what we learned in, I think, 2 Peter. You give a blessing. When you're persecuted, you sit there and you give a blessing and you give a witness. I know it's hard. I know it sounds impossible. But this is what you're supposed to be ready for. This is why you, 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 you spend time in prayer and you spend time in the Word. You sit under the preached Word. You spend time with Christian friends. So when the day comes that you have to stand and be a man of God or a woman of God out in the world and the persecution comes, you're ready to stand. I can stand. I can stand and I can give this persecutor a blessing and I'll give a witness. This is what God expects from his people. I'm going to turn real quick. You know the great text. Um, let's see if I can find it real quick. Nope, that's wrong. Where is it? Here we go. Matthew 5. Let me just read this to you real quick. The words of Jesus, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, do what? Crack him in the head, right? What does Jesus say? Get him later. Get even later. Now Jesus says, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is, this is the place that the true believer is coming to and maturing into. Beloved, that's why you're spending all that time alone with God. So you'll be ready when you're in your walk-a-day you know, life and... The persecution comes and you are, you are ready to give a blessing and to give a witness. You're to be patient under persecution. You are to be patient under persecution. We are patient under persecution. We don't need God to give us an explanation about the persecution. He's told us the persecution is going to come. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It will come. It's coming to me. Persecution, because I love Jesus, because I speak about Jesus, because the world hated Him, the world will hate me. It's coming to me. I'm not going to be shocked. I'm not going to be surprised. I'm not going to be knocked over. I'm not going to be blown away. I know it's coming. It's coming. It might come today. I'll be ready. I'll be ready to give a blessing and I'll be ready to give a witness. That's the only job you and I have on this planet. Everything else 
Everything else is way after that. <laughs> that you're ready to be that, to be patient in the persecution and do what God has called you to do. So why should we be patient? Someone tell me. A lot of good reasons. I guess the best answer is God is. Hasn't God been patient with you? Hasn't God been patient with you? Shouldn't you be in hell right now? Shouldn't I be in hell right now? Of course I should, if I understand my Bible. But God has been patient. I love 1 Timothy 1.16. He is patient. His patience is perfect. Romans 9.22 He endures with much patience. Romans 2.4 talks about the riches and kindness and patience of God. So God expects His people to walk in patience. That includes persecution. It's the fruit or a fruit of the Spirit. Amen? The psalmists talk about this a lot. Verse 30, uh, Psalm uh, 37, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord and He inclined to me. Paul says, I'm not going to give you all the Scripture references. I'm going to give you a few quick verses. Paul says, Love is patient. I give no cause for offense in anything in patience. I walk in a manner worthy of, of my calling in patience. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord attaining all patience. And there's verse after verse after verse. I don't have time to continue all the way through these. I'll give you one more. Hebrews 6.12, God says, Do not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Do you see how important this is in your life? This, this outflowing of patience in your life. And in, in the context that James is mentioning, it, 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 we're talking about persecution. Yes, patience with your spouse and patience with your children and patience with your co-worker and patience with your neighbor. But when the persecution comes, we're patient in the sovereignty of God. And we trust that God is doing something we simply don't understand. He's working righteousness in a way we don't understand. It doesn't matter if I understand. I am the disciple of Jesus Christ. I am simply supposed to be ready. You know, I, I, this is a bad thing in the modern church. People are always shocked when something happens. You're supposed to be ready when it happens. <laughs> you're supposed to be. Beloved, you're supposed to be ready. You're not supposed to be shocked when the hard thing comes. Because if the hard thing is here, someone tell me, I say it all to you all the time. If the hard thing is here, what? God is here. God comes in the hard thing and God's going to change you. And He's going to change me in the hard thing. There's this word picture here in verse 7 about the rain and the farmer. And I, I have this movie I like to watch. It's, it's, it's kind of a cheesy movie. But uh, some of you may have seen it. Have you seen Facing the Giants? Anybody seen Facing the Giants? It's, American. it's an American movie. Some people don't like it. The acting's not too good. But uh, the, the theme is excellent. So the main character, he's under duress. He's got a lot of problems in his life. And an older and a wiser man comes to him, and he says, "Man, what's going on?" He says, and, and the young man says, uh, "I got, I got all these, I got all these issues going on." And he says, "Well, let me tell you something." So he tells him a short story. He says, "You know, there were two farmers, and they both needed rain real bad, and they both prayed for rain, but only one of them went out and prepared his field to receive the rain." And the old man said, "Which one? Which farmer believed that God would send the rain? Which one believed God would send the rain? Which one? The one who what?" The one who prepared his field. Both prayed, but only one prepared his field. He believed God would send the rain. 
And the old man said to the young man, I know you're in a tough spot. You prepare your field and you wait for the rain. Don't you love that? You prepare your field. You don't understand right now. It's hard right now. It's, you, it's so hard right now. You have so much pressure and you have such burden on you and there's so many unjust things happening in your life. The old man says, listen, prepare your field to receive the rain. The rain is coming. I love this about God. The rain is always coming. You are supposed to be like a farmer. Preparing your field, the rain is going to come. Again, this is in the context of patience. Man, I don't know if I could be a farmer. That's a tough deal. You know, just waiting on the rain. Waiting on the rain. But that's what it's like to be a Christian. Sometimes we're just waiting on God for His perfect timing. In faith, we wait. In faith, I always love that little story. So we live by faith and patiently wait upon God, knowing that God will bring the rain at the proper time. Verse 8, God says, strengthen your hearts. The rain is coming soon. God says, I'm coming soon. This, the Greek word here uh, literally means to establish. Establish yourself. Be firm. Stand on the rock. Stand on the rock. The rain is coming. God is coming. He'll come at the perfect time. He'll do the perfect thing. And you'll praise Him for all eternity. So why are you wringing your hands? And why are you upset? And why are you anxious? Trust the Lord. You know, this is really all God asks of us. <laughs> trust Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. The psalmists were all over this. Psalm 71, 3, just for the sake of time, I'll give you one. And I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. He says, God is our, our vast granite fortress. I've always loved this phrase. He is our vast granite fortress. No one can touch me. No harm can come to me apart from what God has ordained. I am in the midst, of, I am standing on a rock, and nothing can change that. No created thing can change the fact that I stand on the capital R rock. Nothing can change that. Verse 8, there at the end of the, at the, end of the verse. The Lord says, I am coming quickly. Don't you love it? Don't you love it? The Lord says He is coming quickly. Last week we saw that James condemned the wicked rich for hoarding up their riches in the last days. He said, don't you know it's the last days? Why are you hoarding up in the last days? They had no regard for God's command regarding money. They had no regard for God's redemptive plan. They had no regard for the promise of Jesus that I'll be back quick. And some of you, let me just, it's possible that some of you are really not living with that truth in the forefront of your mind that Jesus says, these are the last days and I'm coming back quickly. You're living like you're, living like you're going to put down roots here. You're planning like you're going to put down roots on this planet. No Christian ever puts down roots in this planet, on this planet. Jesus is coming, and He is coming quickly. And because we believe that's true, we live like that. We, we live differently than the world. We don't put down roots. We are aliens. We are exiles. We are pilgrims. It pleases God when we live like we know that. Paul told Timothy, pardon me, Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, verses 12-13, we live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Yeah, I know there are a lot of different views about 
Christ coming back, I get that, but you know what? He could call His people home right now. It could happen right now. I know you, you read books and they say, well, it can't happen yet. It could happen right now. The New Testament writers believed it. They lived like they believed it. I guess my question for you is, has the church forgotten that this is a pervasive theme in the, in the Bible? That these are the last days and Jesus is coming back quickly. Does that impact the way you live when you get up on Monday morning? I don't know. It should. It should. Jesus is coming soon, He says. Verse 3, pardon me, verse 9. Jesus reminds us that, that He is the judge. He's right at the door. I think this is a warning to the tares. We've been talking about James is preaching to both the, the wheat and the tares. He's preaching to those who are saved to go on in their sanctification. He's preaching to the, the, the nominal Christian, the, the, the pseudo-Christian who's sitting in the congregation. And he's saying, uh, he's warning the, the tares even as he exhorts the wheat. Verses 10 and 11, James says, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And you remember the, the litany in, in Hebrews 11. These prophets, they were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, mocked, scourged, imprisoned, stoned, put to death by the sword, and they were sawn in two. And I guarantee you, none of them asked God for an explanation. God, why are you letting this happen to me? They trusted God. They were patient in the persecution. Listen, I'm not saying we're going to be perfect in this because it's, I, I know some of you may live in places where you will face martyrdom. Most of us will never face that reality. Our persecution will be much to a much lesser degree. My challenge to you, I think, tonight is are you getting ready for the persecution? Are you getting ready for the day when you're challenged as a Christian? And everything that you, you profess to believe is being challenged by either one individual or two or three or, or the mob. Can you stand there in full confidence and trust God and be a witness? This is one of the things I think the Lord is saying to us here. I've got to give you this verse. Uh, you guys know it. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18. Paul says, hey, these are momentary light afflictions. Amen? Amen? Momentary light afflictions? Don't you love that? And it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Verse 11, James reminds us of the endurance of Job. That the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And, and He is merciful. How many of you know the book of Job? Are you, are you familiar with the book of Job? How in the world does the Bible tell us that God is full of compassion and mercy after, after what happened to Job? I, I, know, I know men who left uh, or abandoned their so-called uh, Christianity because they, couldn't, they, they were offended at how God dealt with Job. And I, I get this sometimes. You know, people are just offended at how God let Satan loose on Job. They're offended at this. Listen, you know that God has a right to do whatever He pleases with the vessels that He's created. God is... God, you know, people are offended at God's free will. <laughs> I've seen this many times. You know, we're, you know, men beat their chests about their free will, but we're not going to let God have free will. God's constrained 
But I've had men actually say, I can't, I, I can't take it. I can't take what God did or what God allowed to happen in the life of Job. So, but here's what you have to understand. Yeah, Job suffered greatly. But what was God doing? At the end, God gives Himself in a brand new way to Job. You know, you have to come to the place where you understand this and believe this and you own this, that God is better than anything else on this planet. God is even better than my own life. God is better. I'll be faithful to God no matter what comes because He's better. God is better. It's why Job worshipped. when he lost That day he lost everything but his life and his wife, remember? He, he worshipped. How do people do this? And we know Job, Job struggled throughout the book to one degree or another. But he never mistrusted God. Job teaches us when you lose everything, faith says God is better. And another thing about Job, when you study that book, you realize God gave him no explanation. I want to give you a Larry Crabb quote and I'm just about finished. Larry Crabb about hard times in the Christian's life. I've always loved this quote. Listen to this. Our shattered dreams are never random. I mean, if I stopped right there, that's enough for us, right? <laughs> As Christians, that's enough. Our shattered dreams are never random. Pain is always a tragedy but it is never only a tragedy. God is doing something. God is doing something. You know, I've noticed, and I bet you've noticed this too, desperate people sometimes cry out to God. Happy people almost never do. Sometimes tragedy enters our life or trial enters our life because God means for you to turn and look at Him like you have never looked at Him before. This is a blessing that God does in the hard thing that we might turn and look at Him like we have never looked at Him before. We've been talking about it in young adult Bible study. God is not distracted with our temporal happiness. He's working to a much greater good. What is that greatest good in, in the believer's life? He's going to turn you into. He's going to. He's going to make you look like Jesus. He's going to bring you into conformity with Jesus. Right? He's not distracted with our temporal happiness, health, wealth, and prosperity. God's not into that. He may bless you in that regard. He may not. That is his business. The Bible is not a key to health, wealth, and prosperity. This is not, you know, a, there's no genie in the bottle here. Sometimes God blesses. Sometimes God takes. The Lord gives. And the Lord takes away. This is God's prerogative. And the true believer is patient in the sovereign providences of God. So we can patiently trust and wait upon God even when it's hard because He's a promise-keeping God. He's an I-will-see-to-it God. He's Jehovah Jireh. And He is coming quickly. That is His promise. James is exhorting us to live like we really believe that this is true. Like the farmer. Be like the farmer. <laughs> Be like the farmer. Expect the rain. One quick, one quick quote and I'm done. John Piper, American preacher, says this, impatience is a form of unbelief. Do you believe it? 
Impatience is a form of unbelief. It's when we begin to doubt God's wisdom, goodness, and timing. But biblical patience is a willingness to wait for God in the un... Listen to this. I love this sentence. Biblical patience is the willingness to, to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience. The unplanned place at the unplanned pace. We patiently, we patiently wait on the Lord. I wouldn't trade one of God's promises for 10,000 explanations. 